In today's episode, we learn why video calls are bad for creativity, a man has his penis reattached, and we dive into the world of lab-made breast milk. But first, it was on this day in 1348 that a ship from Bordeaux carrying the plague landed in Dorset, beginning the Black Death in England. In an industrial park outside of Oxford in the UK, a group of scientists claim they're on the way to solving a global conundrum, how to create the energy needed to power the world cleanly and safely. As energy prices and the cost of living soar across the UK and Ireland, these scientists say they've found the answer to harness the power of nuclear fusion. Unlike the nuclear fission process used in traditional power plants, fusion does not create radioactive waste as a harmful byproduct. In nuclear fission, huge amounts of energy are created by splitting an atom. This energy then heats pools of water, the steam from which turns turbines to generate electricity. So how does this new technology work? Developed by First Light Fusion, it involves firing a projectile ignited by gunpowder down a giant gun where it eventually hits a target to release energy. Charging. Fire! The resulting reaction is called fusion. It's the same process that powers the sun and the stars. Giving a tour of their labs to Euronews, CEO and co-founder Dr. Nick Hawker explains their unique process. Gunpowder ignites a series of projectiles that hit a special target, but that's not the important part of the technology. It's not about the projectile, it's about what it hits. And that's our target, and the target focuses the energy of the projectile into fusion fuel. And what you see here are all our neutron detectors, which are... Um, measuring that fusion event happening. Despite the fact that it has only produced a very small amount of energy, the company says it's a first step and important proof that fusion can be created more simply and cheaply. Why is this important for fusion and for society? Well, this is a new approach to fusion. It's never been explored before. I think any time there's a new approach, that's significant for the field. Um, if we can get this to work, our pathway to a power plant is much simpler and potentially much quicker. Around the world, video meetings have become the new normal. But what impact could this have on our work? According to your new research, one important skill is impacted by the restrictions of video calls, creativity. This work looks at um, what we are now calling the new normal, which is virtual interaction and uh, how that might affect innovation. That's Melanie Brooks, the author of the study Speaking with Nature, about how she carried out their research. Participants would either go into the same physical space, which was just an empty lab room, or we would split them into two separate lab rooms and have them communicate um, with video technology. And we had them generate ideas. There's around a 2.5 idea difference. So in-person groups are generating around 16 or 17 ideas, whereas the virtual condition is generating between 13 and 15. But is that really surprising? A lot of people mentioned, yeah, Zoom's just a worse version. Of course, people are just bad at Zoom. Like, everything is going to be worse at Zoom. So maybe this had nothing to do with creativity. So Melanie tested this with a second task, asking participants to identify their most creative idea. This requires very different skills to the brainstorming task. But what's interesting is Zoom wasn't universally bad or video conferencing wasn't universally bad. When it came to idea selection, we found, if anything... 
the virtual condition was better. So what is it that makes idea generation and only idea generation so much harder over a video call? We looked at how much participants felt they connected with the other through self-report. We looked at unconscious connection through mimicry. We looked at trust through a monetary game. We also looked at whether there was crosstalk where people were talking over each other for communication coordination. What we find is for the social connection, no difference between conditions. For the communication coordination, we did find slight differences, but it couldn't explain the effect. But there was one difference between virtual and in-person conversations that did seem to make a difference, and Melanie spotted it by tracking people's gaze. Are you looking at your partner? Are you looking at the surrounding environment? Or are you looking at the task? And it's interesting, again, if you ask people what their intuition is, they think that there's more social connection when we're in person, and so we probably engage with our partner more. Um, but we found the exact opposite. So we found that in the virtual condition, people are looking significantly more at their partner, almost double. And because of that, it's at the expense of their broader environment. I have the entire environment as our shared environment. Wherever I look, that is going to be part of my partner's environment too. However, when we're talking virtually, our shared environment is pretty limited to the screen. And we thought that this could lead to more focus we should hurt idea generation because we're actually the most creative when we're unfocused and free. So rather than online conversations being inherently always better or worse, it could be that we just need to adjust how we talk based on what we want to achieve. Creativity and innovation are important in a lot of jobs, but online meetings still offer some advantages. Melanie is keen to test her theories further, but there's a bit of a problem. All of this research has been halted because we can't collect in-person data um, without people wearing masks. And that, of course, completely changes the experience. So there's tons of different experiments I would love to run that I haven't been able to do because we can't run in-person studies right now. Well, for now, Melanie's work has certainly given us plenty of food for thought. Still to come on the Sunday 7, a revolutionary new tool to teach female anatomy and how often do you wash your sheets? often should you be changing and washing your bedsheets? Research has shown the public cannot agree on the answer and a new survey of 2,250 UK adults has found another, perhaps not all too surprising split. Lindsay Browning, a chartered psychologist, neuroscientist and sleep expert, joined BBC Radio Kent to set the record straight. This uh, was a survey of uh, over 2,000 adults and it found that uh, of all the people, different ages, single or not single, that uh, single men were pretty much the worst. And they, uh, 45% of them only changed their bedsheets uh, once every three to four months. So it could be perhaps why they're single would be my, my gut instinct on that one. Not only that, 12% of single men also admitted that they wash them when they remember, which could be even longer. Yuck. So what's the right answer? Is there a definitive answer to how often we should be washing our sheets? Yeah, so we have to balance it with obviously the environment and not, and not spending too much energy and wasting too much water. But when we sleep, we we get rid of our dead skin cells, we sweat, as well as being physically dirty. So they do get very grubby. We really should be washing them about every week or two weeks at the most. And, and more frequently if it's hot weather, so in the summer, we'll need to wash them more frequently than in the winter. Mm. But yeah, one, every once to two weeks at the max would be recommended for best sleep. And if you go beyond that, what are the implications? Uh, if you wait too long, then the sheets obviously will get 
we sweat a lot during the night, so they'll get full of all this sweat. And that will mean that the airflow won't go through the covers. And to sleep well, we need to be cool. And we need air to be able to flow to give us keep us refreshed and cool during the night. If our bed sheets are, in essence, sort of soaked in, in sweat and dead skin cells, we're just not going to have that lovely airflow as well as the smell. Uh, it's going to smell horrible. We sleep so much better when we get into our bed and it's a wonderful, relaxing, calming place to be. So if we have freshly laundered, good smelling sheets, we're going to sleep even better because we feel happy to be in our bed. Apart from some fresh sheets for those who are struggling with sleep, what else can we do? I'm seeing so many more people in my clinic that are struggling with sleep at the, at the moment since, since COVID. So a lot of times it's because we get into a bad habit. If we're not sleeping well at night, um, then we might decide to cancel our morning meetings and have a lie-in. We might try to go to bed extra early to make up for the fact that we're not sleeping well. And then all that we do is we end up spending longer and longer in bed, getting more and more frustrated and fed up that we can't sleep. So actually, going to bed at a regular time, waking up every morning at the same time is one of the best things that you can do. And making sure that your bedroom and your bed is a happy, relaxing place to be where you feel calm and happy and not somewhere that you're also working in or scrolling through your phone in bed, meaning that your brain gets confused. You know, is my bed for sleep or is my bed for looking at TikTok cat videos? And if you find yourself constantly counting sheep at night... The first thing that I tell all my clients is it's really normal to wake up in the night. Just because you're woken up in the middle of the night doesn't mean you're asleep is suddenly broken of poor quality because everyone wakes up lots of times. We just don't remember it. So what you want to do is to get back to sleep again in a reasonably short amount of time. So things that you can try when you've woken up in the middle of the night are maybe some slow, deep breathing. That can be really helpful because that helps to lower your heart rate, helps to relax your mind and your body. You could also try, if you wake up and and your brain is just busy and you're thinking, oh no, I've got a presentation tomorrow and you start worrying, then try to do something to refocus your brain. So thinking about um, a, a relaxing scenery is a great idea. So imagine yourself on a beautiful beach, walking along the beach, your feet dipping in the toes of the lovely sand and the sea, and just really focus on something else relaxing rather than allowing your brain to just keep thinking, oh yes, I really should have replied to that work email, and if I don't get to sleep soon, then oh my goodness, tomorrow's going to be a disaster. A new 3D female anatomy model has been used to better treat women. Previously, the teaching of anatomy has always been based on the male form and then the differences in females added on um, as an almost strange kind of adjunct. That's Professor of Anatomy Claire Smith speaking with the BBC. The tools developers say that it is the most detailed female anatomy ever produced. It aims to provide a better understanding of the female anatomy and help to prevent women getting incorrectly diagnosed. The female skeleton is slightly more slender in its nature. It's amazing to see all the really intricate detail of the female pelvis. So it's not just um, a uterus stuck into a male pelvis. It's completely designed um, with all of the female form. Currently, Brighton and Sussex Medical School are using this tool to teach first-year medical students. Several studies show that women are more likely than men to be misdiagnosed for a range of conditions. The hope is that having both male and female anatomies in exquisite detail will help prepare the doctors for the future to provide more equitable care. Still to come on the Sunday 7, a man and his penis are reunited. The future of 3D organ printing. Right after this. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. A man who spent six years with a penis on his arm after an operation went wrong finally has it reattached to its rightful place. 45-year-old Malcolm MacDonald had his penis amputated in 2014 after a blood infection caused it to decay. A year later, doctors revealed he could have a new penis grafted from the skin on his arm. However, a lack of oxygen in his blood during surgery meant doctors had to abort midway and stuck his six-inch penis to his left arm temporarily. His journey to reattachment was captured by Channel 4 in a new documentary aptly called The Man With A Penis On His Arm. There two other subjects in the film, Annika who was born with an underdeveloped penis and Lee who was born without a penis and only obtained one through surgery at the age of 42. The surgery in question is called phalloplasty and for Malcolm it couldn't have come sooner. Nine hours. First thing I've done was look down at all my days. They got it right this time. Hope to have six years of a cock on my arm. <laughs> but it's gone now, little bugger. Breast milk is the perfect food for babies, but not all mothers are able to breastfeed, and with adoption or surrogacy, some parents don't have the option. Enter Biomilk. The North Carolina-based startup is working to create human milk outside of the body. The idea first came to the co-founder and chief science officer, Lelia Strickland, in 2013, after she heard about the world's first lab-grown burger. A cell biologist by training, Strickland wondered if similar technology could be used to culture human milk-producing cells. It turns out, you can. This realization quickly led to my second question, which was, can we collect the milk that the cells are making? Globally, only one in three babies receives as much breast milk in their first six months as experts recommend, says the World Health Organization. Instead, many parents rely on formula. Often based on powdered cow's milk, formula is able to satisfy the nutritional requirements, but it cannot replicate the complexity of human milk. We at Biomilk are designing a production process to harness the full molecular complexity of human milk, while a number of other groups in, in this space are also making progress on the production of individual components that can be used to make a variety of dairy products. Biomilk is distinct in our commitment to producing the full constellation, which is especially critical for a nutrition product that's intended for babies. 
Royal Milk Team creates its product from cells taken from human breast tissue and milk donated by women in the local community. Then they grow the cells in flasks, feeding them nutrients and then incubating them in a bioreactor that mimics the environment in a breast. Here the cells absorb more nutrients and secrete milk components. Unlike cultured meat, our cells are not the end product themselves, but rather they are the producers. This is a significant benefit as it means that we're able to sustain a production run over many months, during which time each cell will reproduce its own mass in milk many, many times over. It's the first step towards a potential solution for parents who can't breastfeed, but Biomilk is still at least three years away from selling their product. The startup needs to grow mammary cells at a much larger scale and at a lower cost, but most importantly, they still need to convince regulators that the product is safe for our most vulnerable humans. future where instead of waiting for a match, your local hospital could print a new organ made from your own cells. This technology, called bioprinting, is the main focus of research for Dr. Christophe Marquette, Director of Research at the French National Centre for Scientific Research. We've made some cartilage, we are working on, uh, on lung, uh, some people are working on liver also. We aim to uh, 3D bioprint some skin directly on patients. The patient will be uh, some people that have uh, severe burns, so third degree burns on the skin. The idea is to make it directly in the, in the surgery theatre. But how does the process work? The vocabulary of the printing, there is the machine, the printer and there is the ink. And in our case it's a bioprinter, so we have a bio-ink. So the idea is to take a few cells from the patient, we put this in the bio-ink. So this bio-ink needs to host the cells and keep the cells alive. So they need oxygen, they need sugar, they need a lot of things, a lot of water, a little bit of, uh, we call it biomaterial, so it's proteins and, and things like that. And then you have the robotic part, a robotic arm which is moving on top of the skin and is putting on top of the skin some gel with the human cells inside. So the people are working as a, an incubator. It's a regeneration, it's not a grafting. Science still has a long way to go before transplants will happen, but Christoph is in no doubt it can be done. Significant work has already been made on simpler tissues like skin, but researchers around the world are working in the early stages of printing vital organs like lungs, hearts and livers. And the idea there is to uh, put this uh, large tissue in special devices that looks like you're inside the body, for example. So the temperature is controlled, you can inject some information or give some information, special information. So it looks futuristic, looks like a science fiction, but it has to be done. So then when you, when you get this, then you're ready for, for whatever you want. You can make a liver, you can make a, a, a heart, you can make a lung, so that's the, the next step. I think 20 years, <laughs> not before. Christophe's team is currently working on a project known as Blockprint in partnership with the French military. Their goal is to regenerate skin on burns victims using bioprinting directly in the operating theatre. But Christophe is contemplating the ethical implications of printing entire organs. Patching some uh, people that are burned everywhere, it's a completely different approach or completely different uh, uh, way of, of thinking the, uh, the medicine than okay, I, I can grow your heart, I can grow your liver, I can grow your, uh, your kidney. What will be the impact on the people and their, their behavior if they know that they can have this? I'm pretty sure it will be done. I'm not 
sure yet if it's uh, interesting for the society or not, but uh, I don't know. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.